Hello, welcome to Sound Engagement, a podcast devoted to engaging with our culture and community from a Christian worldview. I'm Brad Mills. I'm sorry. I'm Peter Anderson. <laughs> I'm trying to go really fast. <laughs> this is how we got it. Oh. No, we have to have some random uh, yeah. laughter in the very, very beginning yeah, intro yeah. now. We it's have just, to laugh. Let's do it. No, that's good. Um, and are you really going to wear a hat during the interview? I see that you're I think wearing I might. Yeah, I, I'm not. So I've been really? moving, Peter. I've been moving okay. our church. I didn't get to see I'm, your beautiful jet black I'm hair. Not, I'm not dressed <laughs> for counseling or for seeing anyone. I, I am just in the process. I believe you're a San Francisco 49er fan. Ah, oh, man. Uh, well, actually, I was rooting for them in the Super Bowl, man. Yeah, I was. I, I liked Garoppolo. Garoppolo was awesome, man. Very, yeah. very unfortunate. Yeah. I. I really do think the better team lost. I think they they I, they had yeah. they've controlled that game until the very end. But that's the that's the threat with Mahomes. Um, yeah, Patrick Mahomes, Mahomes is, is just Gosh. you never can count him out. And I I said that before we we, we played the game. So I was on pins and needles the whole way, yeah. even when we were up by yeah. Richard Sermon, but, yeah, he did not do nearly as well. So anyway, yeah, it was uh, it was sad. I, I they'll get them this year though. Yeah. If if they even play, I mean, here's the thing: the the year for this with COVID is is so up in the air. I'm actually we're we're having our fantasy football draft on Friday, and I'm mm. I'm fearing is that, that. Is that fun fantasy football. I refuse to play it. It's a little bit addicting, yeah, and, and it's, it. <laughs> it's a good reason not to play for sure. Oh my! Um, I used to when we first yeah. played. I I would play back when you would get the newspaper stats out and have oh, to add that. it up and figure out the points on your own, and then send out a spreadsheet to everyone to let them know what place they're in. Yeah. Like that was that was how big. I, and I was the one you know directing it, so it's like. I was yeah. way into it, and then I then you get to the point where you feel like you have to watch every game that you're playing. You have someone yeah. on a team. I know, I know my personality. If I got involved with it, because I want to love football, and if I got on that, I would, I would. Oh would yeah, I played. You ever played the um, the game Clash of Clans? Clash. Of, it's a little game. Uh, yes. Yep, yeah, I got into it I got, a while. I got <laughs> it's really bad. Oh my gosh, I used to have a joke. Um, I kind of have yeah. funny stories. I have a, um, with my wife. I would call. And or I would text her and um, uh-huh. and I would I, I would say to her, I would text and I would say, sweetie, I'm in such a really bad spot. I'm, <laughs> I'm really having a hard time. And she immediately would text back and she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, I lost I lost a clan war. Yeah, my, I lost my, the war. Clan war and um, my wizard died. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and we had this long standing joke. And it's I was going to take a whole day. To yeah, rebuild. this one day, this one day, it was like two years later. So I text her and I say. Um, and I write, I said, babe, I'm in a really, really bad spot. I am, I'm having an extremely hard time. I really need you to call me. And I forgot about the text because a client walked in. Oh, and no. then I had another client walk in like right after. So you're talking. And then after that, I went to CrossFit. So she's freaking so, out. And then, yeah, she, she oh, yeah, to get your like, CrossFit. Sent, oh, my gosh. Oh, shoot. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, babe. I mentioned it. I mentioned CrossFit. Um, and then I go, and then I'm, I'm back home. I'm all sweaty. I haven't talked to her in three hours. She's in tears. She had called um, oh one of my clinicians down the hall. She was like, Peter, is he okay? And she's like crying. And she's like, Aww. oh, my gosh, babe, what happened? She was like, well, you sent me a text about how you're in a really bad spot. And I'm like, oh. 
Oh, babe, it's because I lost the clan war. I was totally joking. That <laughs> <laughs> was really bad. Yeah, that was oh, the last I, time you played I, that joke. Yeah, I know. Never again. So don't don't do that. Don't do that. Well, oh, we're in for a good treat. Man. We're in for a good treat today. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this was a really good discussion. Uh, uh, should I tell you? Should I tell them about uh, who we're talking to? Yes. Jeffrey. Yeah. Go yes. ahead. And we're talking to Doctor Doctor Jeffrey. Uh, Barrows. He's a senior vice president of CMDA, Christian Medical Dental Association. And uh, we will be talking about transgender, transgenderism and children. Uh, it's gonna, I'm, I'm really excited about all y'all listening. And he, he really challenges. Actually, he doesn't necessarily he challenge. Worked. He just has a lot of facts. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. just very informative. Yeah, so, right. and, and even before we jump into it, Peter, mm. in this topic, um, one of the th Hmm. It, it wasn't even on my radar really right there i didn't know people i had no interaction with folks who were who were questioning these things um until like the last i don't know five five years or less why why is it how why is it such a big deal right now and how much of a increase have we seen on the top yeah. i mean I, I know looking at the stats there's some suggestion that it was like it was just a very, very, very small portion, like one in 10,000 um, people that were that were questioning their gender. And now it's mm -hmm. now it's something like 2% of girls in high school that question their gender. Um, yeah. And that was well, just a, a, a stat study. I heard from Abigail Schreier. Yeah. yeah. As of 2017, so this is three years old, 150,000 teenagers ages three, 13 to 17 identifies trans and then... Um, a major clinic in the United Kingdom saw more than 300% increase in referrals over the past three years. So that's 2017. That's the latest, latest data I had. And I think that was from the Atlantic. So I'm sure it's, it's a lot more, but we're, you know, I, I'm excited for y'all listening to this It's a controversial topic. We'll get into that. We'll get into um, why it's a controversial topic. We'll get into what transgenderism is uh, some of the, some of his data on what it does when you are transitioning um, detransitioning, what happens when you detransition? Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff, and then some resources in the very end. So I'm, I'm yeah, excited. We'll, yeah, we'll post those resources in the show notes, so you don't need to write them down or track them down. But um, I, we we hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. All right. Well, we are here with uh, Dr. Jeff Barrows. Thank you. Uh, uh, you just asked me to uh, call you by Jeff, if that's okay. So uh, we're really excited to have you. We're going to be talking about really transgenderism, especially as it relates to kids. And I thought I would that would be a good focus. I didn't really want to talk too much about transgenderism in adults, um, but more like the, the children and what we should do about it and just get some of your wisdom. I came across some of your writing on this issue. I believe it was about... Um, uh, just the ethics of it. And uh, uh, so we, we could definitely talk about some of the stuff that you wrote. But if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself. Uh, tell us about, uh, and we saw that you're the senior vice president of CMDA, which is, uh, I believe, Christian Medical Dental Association. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good to be with you, Peter. Uh, I, I, uh, you're right. I'm the senior vice president of bioethics and public policy uh, here at CMDA. We are a membership organization of Christian physicians, dentists, mm. nurse practitioners. Uh, we have PAs, all kinds of healthcare professionals that are part of our membership. We have about uh, over 19,000 members across the country and most of the medical missionaries across the world uh, are CMDA members and have 
lots of uh, connections with us. So we uh, not only are a national organization, but uh, also very supportive of our missionaries that are all across the world. So uh, I'm honored to be in this position. And, and of course, as the title says, I kind of tend to focus on some of these uh, edgy topics like we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Actually, I do like to know a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your, about, uh, do, do you have kids? Tell us uh, how long have you been involved? In, I suppose you live in Tennessee. Is that right? And are you well, married? Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah actually, I, I have been associated with CMDA for well over 20 years in various capacities and give you a little of my background. I practiced obstetrics and gynecology in a small town in Ohio for many years, uh, raised a, a family, I have two daughters and a son. Uh, one daughter, by the way, Peter, is, is a, a mental health professional herself. Uh, another daughter is a nurse practitioner and my son is a pastor. Um, they're all adults now. And uh, this position I've only been in for about four months now. It came up uh, earlier this year. I wasn't expecting it. I was actually beginning to kind of move into retirement. But as I learned about the position, uh, I have been involved actually the last 15 to 20 years in the realm of human trafficking. Hmm. That's a very another very okay. easy topic. But hmm. I have been involved in, in educating healthcare professionals on how to recognize and assist victims of human trafficking. They very commonly come into the healthcare setting. I even started a home in Ohio for young girls under the age of 18 who are victims of hmm. uh, sex trafficking, domestic minor sex trafficking. So with that background, when this position came open, I, I really um, prayerfully considered it and, and decided to apply. Uh, with the knowledge that if I was accepted into it, I have, would have to relocate here to Bristol, Tennessee, which is where the headquarters of uh, CMDA is. And, and I agreed. And fortunately, I have a, a very loving and, and a, a flexible wife that uh, was uh, agreeable to, to allow me to relocate. So I've been here since April 1st uh, and working in, in this new new position. Actually, it, it's not just new to me, but it's a new position here at CMDA. It used to be kind of filled with our previous CEO. He kind of mm -hmm. did the CEO role, and then he also had a passion for public policy and that type of thing. And then when he retired, uh, he left this part of the work void, and, and that's why they decided to create this position. That's great. In fact, I just came across one of your articles that you gave to Harvard Journal on sex trafficking, I believe. Uh, you gave that a few years ago because they were yeah. interviewing you. Uh, are you a, are you a, go hey, ahead, go ahead, Brad. I'd love to follow up on that too. Just, uh, it is such a hot button issue right now as well. The idea of, you know, the hashtag save our children. And I wonder some of that seems to be tied into um, things that are just being dismissed as conspiracy theories, you know, and, and all of the deep state connections. And I just wonder how much of that impacts the progress that's been made. Is it, is there some very good value that that's happening even right now with the raising of awareness just of the, um, of the issue of, of trafficking? Well, I think a lot of it has been lost in the headlines of COVID-19. It's just been swallowed up by that. And, uh, and I've really tried to do a little research as to whether COVID has increased or decreased sex trafficking. Now that's mm. 
the broad topic of human trafficking involves really two major types. That's labor trafficking and then sex trafficking. And I spent most of my time and the most common form of trafficking here in the United States is actually domestic sex trafficking. And I think that overall, uh, it's probably been neutral. There are some, some factors with COVID that have caused it to go up, but there are others that have caused it go, to go down. For instance, um, most, we call them Johns, men that buy sex. Um, a lot of them are married. And before they, they'd be out and around, they would be traveling on business trips. They would be going places and they could just tell their wife and family, I'm gonna be gone. And, and then they'd go and buy sex. Well, obviously with COVID-19, mm. that's, that's been markedly changed because travel hasn't happened. But on the other hand, the ability for people to get in and find where these girls and women are being held in homes has been greatly limited. And there are networks and, and ways uh, to get uh, the word out that they are for sale for sex on social media and, and other websites that, that have kind of blown up as well. So um, I, it's, it's definitely still going on. It's, it's, it's as horrific as it's ever could be, as you can imagine. I mean, we had girls in the home I started, which is really called Grace Haven. It's the only home in the state of Ohio. Well, there's, I should take that back. There's a second one now for minors, but there are only two in the entire state. We estimate there are about a thousand girls in Ohio under age 18 that are being trafficked at any one time. And our home has about 24 beds. The other one has about 16. So it's uh, it's an area where there's a huge, huge need, you can imagine. Mm -hmm. It's really bad up here in Boston. Yeah. There's a there's a ministry called Amira that uh, reaches out that our church is part of that uh, reaches out to people who've been in that industry. I I um I I would love to you know transition, but I don't um segue. I would like to segue into this because what got you? How did you get involved with this topic, this particular topic, um, in transgenderism and children? And it sounds like you've had this passion for kids and having their uh, I guess, rights taken away from them, the hijacking of the rights, especially with, with, with sex trafficking. And do you see any relationship between that and what you're noticing with um, kids who are, are transitioning? Is it the same thing? Is it, it seems like it's quite different, but what, what kind of got you concerned about that? Well, uh, just to answer your question about, is there, is there a lot of connection between transgenderism and sex trafficking? I would say it's limited because the, the numbers of individuals that are actually identifying as transgender uh, is small, but they do tend to be on the periphery. And if they have uh, in coming out as transgender, been kicked out of their home, that puts them at risk of being trafficked and there are a, a fair number of individuals within the sex trade that identify as transgender. So there is that connection. But relating to my increased interest in, in the issue once arriving here at, at CMDA really goes to our organizational involvement in the issue. And, and that's really in a concern for our, our members. And uh, you're probably not aware, but uh, back in 2016, it was actually in May, when the Obama administration was still in office, um, their health and human services uh, made a change in a very important rule, and it's known as Rule 1557. And it's the rule within HHS that defines what constitutes discrimination, specifically 
sex or uh, discrimination or uh, race and age and all of those things. And uh, just like what has been happening in, in, the, in the Supreme Court lately as well, for decades, sex discrimination was defined as, as discriminating against somebody on the basis of their biologic sex. Well, the Obama administration came along and said and made a change to that. And the change uh, made it so that discrimination would became uh, if, if somebody refused to include a person's perceived gender and even participate in treatment. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of times people have accused CMDA of saying we don't want our doctors to take care of transgender patients. And I want to make clear right, we, right. we want to take, we should be taking care of transgender, all patients. We, we do not want to discriminate, but I'm talking about routine care, things that are, uh, you know, COVID-19 uh, or whatever. But when it comes to participating in the transition. Uh, we, we actually disagree with that on a couple of different levels. And because of the wording in this new Obama HHS rule, we became worried that our members could be sued if someone, let's say a, a trans boy, which is a biologic female who wants to be, sees themselves as a male, comes in and says, I want to get cross-sex hormones and, and I want to be treated and I want to get testosterone so I can become a male. Well, that's a, that's a very experimental treatment. And we were afraid and still are that our members could be sued as a result of that. So we went to court mm -hmm. to fight this, this new regulation. Uh, we and, and several other organizations and the court case was actually entitled Francis Franciscan Alliance V. Azar. And uh, in December of 2016, we won uh, an initial judgment and then it went back to the court uh, finally in October of this past year, October 2019. And uh, the final result was that uh, the court vacated the Obama rule and said this, mm -hmm. this change does not apply. Well, then you're probably aware of the Bostock decision by the Supreme Court which in essence mm. said that sex discrimination could be gender identity and they really included gender identity in the definition of sex discrimination, but this was in the context of employment. So we're still as an organization very worried about this mm. and, uh, and so we, we are still looking into whether or not we need to continue to battle that legally. But that was the initial impetus. And then uh, to get to Peter, something you've talked about too, is we have a lot of questions from our members. Should we, what, what about this transitioning with ch children? What should we do? How should we handle this? What's the medical side of that? So mm -hmm. that was kind of all involved and it's caused me to be spending a fair amount of time and trying to research and keep up with it. Yeah, well, no, it's a, it, I, I, I'm very well aware of what you're describing as a HHS. I mean, because just being in the mental health field, uh, I saw a huge shift in the language. Uh, you know, going from when I moved up here in 2011 up until about 2014, 15, that's when things radically started shifting. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think anybody when I was working at agency in 2012 had heard of anyone under the age of 19 being transgender. Uh, now you could 
it's all over the place. And I'm pretty well aware of the case in Dallas, for example. I'm sure uh, right. it goes at the boy. Is he eight now or 11? They've been kind of fighting that, but the father lost custody, full custody of his child. Um, I think he's eight years old, and mo the mother has full custody now, and uh, she's basically transitioning. Oh, yeah. And this is in I Dallas. Like it's not like it's in Boston yeah. or it's in L.A. It's in a, what I would consider a pretty conservative part of the of the nation. Um, so the reason why I wanted to f uh, focus on this because I teach child development as well. I won't talk too much about that, but it seems like just developmentally, a lot of kids, you know, you think of. Uh, just the the law of conservation, not understanding the law law of conservation, which is just you know if I put if I put something behind a book, um, kids as young as two can't necessarily recognize where it is. Uh, the you know all these all these developmental achievements that kids you know have to go through when you when they when they grow, and it seems like the one push when it comes to transgenderism and kids is that kids somehow know that one, there's a difference between sex and gender. Uh, and the second thing is that they can somehow identify with the particular gender and that if they particular if they have this identification with the gender, that we should start pumping them with hormones and not to do so would not to respect their right, not to, it, to be discriminated, be considered discrimination against them. Um, so, before I before we kind of delve into that, number one, I mean, is there any research that you know of that makes a uh, a medical or a scientific um, claim or that says that there's a difference between sex and gender, or is that more of an ideological approach? Uh, what research states that there is a difference? Because I haven't quite found a paper that proves, you know, through a control group, an experimental group, whatnot, that these two things are completely separated. And that seems to be the assumption, the presupposition coming from people that believe in transgenderism and especially with children. Um, but do you know of any research that that, set, that states that there is a difference between those two things or is it still by just people's self-report? Yeah, medically, mm -hmm. there, there really isn't any difference. And in fact, if you go back just as recent as 2012 and look at the title of some of the European um, studies on transgender, what we say transgender, you'll see the terminology quite frequently of transsexualism. Um, and, and, and this is research that are being, it's being done by people that are very pro-transgender. And so it's been a change in terminology without any biological basis. And, and I think the, the, the transgender ideologues, as I call them, uh, have really been pushing this and they're smart in doing that because it seems to confuse people and it seems to move it away from the older language that, that had some, uh, some baggage associated with it and, and, uh, and a lot of negativity associated with it. But when you really look at uh, at the science and the biology, uh, you're either a male or you're a female. You're either, and, and biologic sex is determined by chromosomes. Uh, it's determined by, of course, the phenotypic changes, we call it, the, the genitalia, all of that. And, and I, I actually get a kick out of reading now that, uh, you know, that the preferred terminology is sex assigned at birth. Well, I've delivered over 3,000 babies. I never assigned any baby a sex at birth. You know, mm -hmm. 
what do you do? You identify the sex at birth. Mm. Now, let me just quickly address, there is a very rare group of medical issues, medical problems that are we call intersex. Mm. They are chromosomal or genetic. They're very rare. Uh, there's a oh, three, five, seven of them. Uh, one example is it's called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And uh, that's more common in baby girls. And but because of a genetic defect, their body is producing a high volume of a particular hormone that is related to the male hormone. It's not testosterone but they've been doing it all in utero. So when the baby is born, they've got these abnormal high levels of this male type hormone. And uh, so the genitalia are ambiguous. You can't really identify. Hmm. And uh, those, those babies end up actually very sick. Uh, and, and so with the exception of these very rare, and, and they're not very common, somebody that practices OBGYN like I did, you might see one once a year, maybe once every six months, depending on how busy you are, it's, it just isn't very common. When you put those aside and you look at, at people that are genetically and chromosomally completely normal, sex and gender are the same. Mm. And there is no scientific difference in, in, in between the two. Yeah, well, one, one push uh, from Megan DeFranza, she's, a, she's becoming well-known um, amongst certain progressive groups. And she wrote a book called Sex Difference in the in uh, in the Image of God or Sex Differences, Intersex, Sex Differences in the Image of God. I believe that was her book, title of her book. And she makes the assumption that because there is intersex, therefore, um, we should accept transgenderism as well as being a biblical approach. It's kind of an interesting leap. Uh, but I would encourage, hmm. you know, listeners to read that, kind of be aware. She's actually a pretty profound scholar. You know, she's done a lot of work on intersex, how we should treat people of intersex. So, I mean, on that, I mean, you said something about them mostly being female. Is it that they have female, more female genes? Help me out, because I don't know anything about the... <laughs> the, the, the well, congenital adrenal hyperplasia tends to show that way. The, you can get it in males, but it doesn't show up as a problem because the males, they're, they're, they're producing the the testosterone and, and androgens normally. It's really a problem in the female that has it. And again, what, what's going on is, and it gets really complicated, but the term, it's the adrenal gland that normally produces things like cortisol and, and, and things that we need normally. But these particular babies have a genetic defect that causes their hormone production to be abnormal and it shifts from cortisol into an androgen and it becomes very high levels of androgens and those androgens then have an impact on the developing female body so that they get uh, genitalia that are, are uh, abnormal and the terminology is ambiguous genitalia. Um, uh, but there are others that affect uh, boys and, 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 and girls equally. So, but overall, the the frequency of intersex abnormalities is very, very small. It was well less than a half percent of all births. I, I don't remember the exact number, but I would say probably in the range of about 0.3, 0.2 percent of all births. 
uh, and they can also be in varying degrees. So you can have a mild congenital hyperplasia where you begin to see a little bit of clitoral hypertrophy, for instance, in a baby girl, and you go, huh, there's something going on. And fortunately now we're familiar enough with it that we test for it right away and, and get that baby treated. Yeah. Uh, so, but those, those are so small and so infrequent uh, that it, in my mind and in most physicians' minds, it, it really is not an important part of the discussion. It certainly is, is less frequent than what we're seeing now in the transgender craze in young girls. Yeah. So talk to me about what you're seeing and some of your concerns. I mean, we're living in a time where transgender rights are really being implemented full force. Uh, and like I just said, children are really unable to see the consequences of some of those decisions. Uh, you know, in, in family therapy, as a family therapist, we call that parentification. Uh, when I parentify, when I, when I basically project my own responsibility on a child as if he can make decisions that a parent only can make. But it's not called that in, in, their, in this community. It's really called respecting where the child is. There are laws in Canada that will actually take the children away from parents. I believe Jordan Peterson yeah. was one of those who, Bill C-16, I believe that's what it's called. Uh, the Democratic Party uh, wants to pass the Equality Act, which would which would also mainly basically do that, uh, where, where, you know, if my five-year-old, I have a five-year-old son who says to me one day, dad, I'm a girl. And he says that to his teacher, but I decide to say, Eli, no, you're a little boy. I could very well lose my little kid. That's the Equality Act. But I think a lot of Christians are aware of that, um, that that could very well happen, mm -hmm. that you may be voting in a party, not to get too political here, <laughs> that might pass a law that if you don't agree with your gender identity, the gender identity of your child, the, this, the courts could take away your child. Um, so... That aside, I mean, what are some of your real concerns? Uh, do you think it respects, this may be a leading question, uh, child development? And if not, why Why does the medical community though just seem so hesitant? Because it just seems they're most, with the exception of, your, of you, most people I speak to are really, really very careful on not bringing in terms that we would normally apply like parentification, for example, but not necessarily transfer them in this particular area of expertise. You know, so what? So two different questions. You, you know, first one is, um, you know, does it respect child development? And if not, why do you think the medical community seems hesitant? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the better ways I want to answer that is to really go to, uh, in my mind, a very similar psychiatric problem and, and and let me just be clear up until the last 10 years gender this actually used to be known as gender identity disorder then since 2013 it's known as gender dysphoria the next iteration of the dsm will probably get rid of that as well but but think about uh the craze that we had 20 years ago in terms of anorexia nervosa, which was again in young girls. And what, what is the, the thing in, in anorexia nervosa? It is a abnormal view of their own body. They saw their body as fat. Now imagine if our society suddenly said, you know what, you're right because it's your body and you know what you're talking about. So we're going to set up all kinds of diet clinics that, that will do special things. We're going to do liposuction on you. We're going to put you on diets. We'll even do stomach staplings because you believe your body is fat. 
Mm-hmm. Now, if anybody mm-hmm. were to try to do that today, they would be hopefully, uh, you know, they, they would be taken before the medical boards and, and accused of malpractice because we somehow with anorexia recognize that this is a, a mental, emotional issue. Yet this, mm-hmm. it's very similar with gender dysphoria. It is a, a perception of their body that is different than physical reality. And yet, you're absolutely right, Peter. The medical world has taken this and said, wow, wow, all these d- decades we've been treating this wrong. We, we need to honor the child the way they see themselves. And therefore, we're going to treat them on the basis of that. I, 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 days I read about this, I think, how in the world did we get to this place? I, I, it, it's, it's, mm. it never ceases to amaze me. And we can get into it a little bit more, but there is so little science. So we're literally experimenting on these kids. We don't know the long-term effect of the puberty blockers. We have no clue the long-term effects mm. on cross-sex hormones. We don't know all the complications for the surgeries. This is all new, and especially when we deal with children. So it's all ideology driven. And and so it's interesting. I was reading earlier today. I can interrupt real quick. I mean, do you feel like it's fear? Do you feel like it's it? Do you think? I mean, that when you're when you're saying that, it just it brought brings a lot. It should you know just. There is a lot of fear. I, yeah. I know I know of members. I know of members. I can't mention their names uh, because they're involved in suits. But I know members that have refused to go along with the transgender ideology who are members of faculties in various universities around the country for many years. And, and they were the top, I mean, top rated faculty. Students loved them. They, they just, they were tenured. And then suddenly this came along and they began to fight it and they're gone. They're just, it's just like that. So there is a lot of fear. Uh, Also, we have the issue where the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Endocrine Society, two of the major uh, medical organizations that that deal with pediatrics and endocrine, they have bought into this. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know all the politics of that and why. I know that a majority of the members of uh, American Academy of Pediatrics do not agree with this. I, I believe that there has been an infiltration uh, of the leadership of these organizations with these I- transgender ideologues who have switched over and, and bought into this. And so it leaves the membership in a very awkward position because when you have the national organization that says, here is the standard of care, then that is, in many courts, the standard of care. It, yeah. it, it creates a very awkward place for, for a lot of these well, it's, And when I went to the APA conference, they were pushing that too. It, it, it is considered unethical if I, um, yeah. like, like if a seven-year-old, you know, identifies as a girl, and he's biologically male for me to refer to him, use uh, those pronouns. So you were about to say something. Yeah, go ahead. Well, hey, Peter, yeah, actually, uh, Dr. Barrows, if you wanted to finish your previous thought, that's kind of interrupting before I go on. Yeah, well, I was reading earlier today uh, a reference at some article today, and they were referencing back 
to uh, the fact they made the statement that 16-year-olds had the ability to make a good decision. And they referenced an article from 1989. And I thought, that's interesting. Let me go back to that article in 1989. And sure enough, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but sure enough, the, 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 uh, the researchers in 89, and this is, I think, in the Journal of Adolescence, uh, we're, we're evaluating uh, the competence of adolescents to make certain decisions. And uh, hmm. they, they did make some statements that, yeah, there was a fair degree of competence there, but they had to recognize that they were also very influenced by peers. And when they were under stress, they did not make good decisions. And so there are a lot of these caveats in this article that were not carried out into in the more recent one that was put out by somebody on the transgender side. So this is a common thing that I see that that they will reference in a biased way some of these research articles and just simply say, see, this research article says that 16 year olds are absolutely competent to make any decision. When you go back to that article, that is not the case. That was not what the authors of that 1989 study said. So you got to get to the truth of some of these things. And, and when you stop and think about it, we don't let these kids uh, drink alcohol till 21. We don't let them smoke till age 18. We don't let them go to war till age 18. And, and really the science right now, the really good neurologic science says that it's the part of our brain, which is the adult part of our brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. That doesn't mature until age 25. It isn't even at 18. Wow. So when you really want to scientifically define when does a person really reach the ability to make a mature, important decision, you really want to say it's the mid-20s. Wow. What would have been the, the kind of response back in the 90s? prior to all of this craze? I mean, what would have been the, the right thing to do from um, a medical standpoint if, if, a, if a family comes in with this concern? Um, I mean, and have those, have those options just been sort of, um, I don't know, eliminated from, from, from good practice now? Yeah, I think it's 19 states, my last count, is, can, quote, quote, conversion therapy is is now illegal in, in 19 states and it's growing. There's a lot of states that are that are putting in more and they, and they have the wrong idea of what conversion therapy is. There's all these horrible stories out there that that somewhere along the line, doctors are using electroshock therapy, putting electrodes on the wow. genitalia. And, and they, these things are, are just wild. Uh, wild stories. I mean, any doctor that would do that would ought to be arrested, but we don't yeah. ever hear about that. Yeah. And, I, and so, also, well, go ahead and finish that thought. I wanted to get on that, but go, please. Yeah. Finish. yeah it's, it's, it's just, yeah. it's, so we've lost that ability uh, for any, any family therapist or child therapist like Peter to sit down and, and, and really talk about the issue of gender dysphoria. And by the way, there are so many, what we call comorbidities, with gender dysphoria. That means there's also significant anxiety right. disorders, depression, all these other mental health problems. It's never by itself. It always goes along with these other things. And just to finish up, it's interesting, you probably are aware of, of what happened at Johns Hopkins back in the late 70s. Johns Hopkins had one of the early 
sex reassignment surgery clinics in the country. And it was all through the 70s. And in the late 70s, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Paul McHugh took over chairmanship of the Department of Psychiatry. And he began looking at all these surgeries and he asked really one question and he said, do we know that we're helping these people? Now this, this was adults, mm. it wasn't minors, it was adults. And he asked his, his, his staff, his department to say, I want you to begin doing studies that show that our surgical procedures are actually helping these people in their mental health long-term so that we can justify continuing to do this. Well, to make a long story short, their studies showed they were not helping. And so what did he do? He shut down the clinic in 1979. He's still wow. one of the primary people that is fighting the transgender movement. He's now in his 80s. He's, he's in a retired emeritus status at Johns Hopkins. And, but he recognizes that there is no good science that supports, even in adults, doing sex reassignment surgery, that it does not reduce the suicide rate. It does not help them mentally, especially if you look long-term. There is some evidence that the initial year or 18 months after the surgery, there's this kind of uh, increase in their overall happiness uh, and quality of life, but that doesn't last very long. And then it goes down and it goes down even worse than what, what, what they were before they had the surgery. Isn't the suicide rate just as high? if not higher, after they transition. It is, it is. Yeah. And there's some, some data that shows that it actually goes up a little higher. It's almost as if they, they experience a degree of regret of what they've done in, mm. in changing their body and, and uh, that added on top of the other emotional issues that the actual completed suicide rate is, is higher in people who have had the surgery. So if a boy, transitions what 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 occurs what happens maybe you could tell our listeners what happens and does if he ever wants to have children biologically can he and same same question for girls what uh what goes on and if they decide to detransition for example say at 24 25 is it possible and yeah uh, well let me start with girls since i'm an OBGYN. i know a little yeah. bit more about that side of it Actually, the uh, Endocrine Society is now recommending that if a child at age 9, 10, 11 is beginning to express uh, symptoms of gender dysphoria, in other words, they're feeling uncomfortable in their body and that they may be of the opposite sex. So let's say a girl feels that they are a boy. Uh, the Endocrine Society is saying that at what's known as Tanner Stage 2, I don't want to get too technical, but but we have actually laid out what the stages of puberty are, and they're called the five stages of Tanner. And Tanner too basically is real early. In a girl, it's, it's really as the breast buds begin to develop, they're getting breast development, that that girl be given puberty blockers first. And that they're very effective. They, they, they work in the brain and they turn off all the hormones and they're recommending that they be kept on puberty blockers until they're, well, depending on, on the clinic, 14 to 16 years old. And then, assuming they still feel that they are suffering from gender dysphoria, they are given the opposite sex hormones. So my hypothetical girl would be given testosterone. And uh, testosterone will then cause her voice to get deeper 
It will cause her to have increased hair growth around her body. Uh, she will continue to uh, have very little uh, breast development. And uh, then at age 18, um, depending on the level of development they've got, is that the point in time where if they continue to want to proceed, they can have what's called top surgery, which would be a double mastectomy for a girl, and bottom surgery, which would, in, for a girl, would include uh, a hysterectomy so that she would no longer have periods, removal of both tubes and ovaries, and then a creation of a penis. And, uh, hmm. Will she ever be able to, go ahead, go ahead and finish all, here. All, what's that? Would she ever be able to have children? Oh, no. No, no, well. no, no. no. Uh, and in fact, we don't know how long it would take, but once either a boy or a girl starts hormones of the opposite sex, there's a, a period of time, it's probably months, not years, but they will render themselves sterile. Oh my God. How long that is, nobody knows because the studies are unethical. Um, but we do know that you stay on those hormones long enough you will be you will be infertile. Now the studies are unethical in the sense that you can't do them. You can't. Yeah. yeah. Because well, that's when I started realizing because I'm you know that's one of the biggest problems I have with the, even the term LGBTQ because there are a lot of lesbians I was noticing who got ousted by the LGBT community um, mainly because they were asking questions. There was a lesbian. Um, uh, she was a medical. She was in medical school at Yale or maybe it was Brown. Last name is Lenham. And she was studying about uh, detransitioning or how it relates, how it seems to be correlated to uh, eating disorders. And her just asking the question, she was asked to mm -hmm. leave. There are several um, lesbian scholars who are very concerned about that. So, and then they were kind of ousted from this own community. Notice, especially amongst older, older, old school lesbians and even some gay scholars as well who've been concerned about some of this. Maybe we should, Andrew Sullivan is a good example of that. He's a conservative reporter, a gay man. I don't know if I really buy it. He says, you know, I don't think I really buy into that. So that's the other thing a lot of maybe our listeners don't know is that it seems the, the term LGBTQ seems to be more on, do you believe that there's a difference between sex and gender? And do you buy into this particular ideology? Not so much whether or not sexual orientation is, can be changed, which I think going to what you were saying earlier about conversion therapy. A lot of people think that, you know, if you're gay through conversion therapy, I could somehow convert myself into being not gay. And um, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence for that, but I'll put that on the side over here. But that's not the same thing of what we're talking about. What we're talking about is radically different. And I think the research I've read on, you know, changing your sexual orientation it actually says it's very, very difficult to do, which as a Christian tells me that we should really love people who sh have that struggle in our churches. Mm -hmm. We should just wrap our arms around them and just love them, especially those who are trying to live a faithful life. What we're talking about right here is that mm -hmm. I did not know it only took a few months that if you put this child on puberty blockers within, you know, and she's 10 years old, starts at nine, she's going to never have a child again. Yeah. Well, let me let me clarify one thing, mm, oh, Peter. Yes. It's not the puberty blockers. Okay. Though, though we don't know. Uh, again, we're, it's experimentation. Mm. It's the key is the cross sex hormone. So for a young girl, okay. you put her on testosterone, 
I would say, and again, it's just an educated guess because there is no data, but over time, that ongoing testosterone for the girl or estrogen for a boy will render them infertile. It's the cross-sex hormones that eventually do that. Now, you know, this might be a trust. I don't mind saying this. If I don't, if this isn't the definition of child abuse, I don't know what yeah. is. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's been uh, but, yeah, by, it's just several it's people. Really, and, yeah. and here's we talked about this a little bit earlier. Here's the worst thing, and that is if you don't do anything with these kids, you don't do anything. Don't do counseling. Don't do puberty blockers. Don't do cross-sex hormones. Eighty-five percent will mm -hmm. revert back to their biological sex on their own as they go through puberty. Eighty-five percent. Wow. So you're first of all, you're you're doing experimentation, child abuse on kids. Secondly, you're treating them unnecessarily. Anything that has an wow. 85 percent spontaneous resolution rate. Why would you even be treating them? Where's the research for that? Because I would like to put that as a link when we post this. I mean, if you wouldn't mind emailing that mm -hmm. to me, that would be fantastic. Any links or journals to that. Um, yeah. That would be have you uh, my next question kind of related here, but um talking about detransitioning, even the Atlantic uh, wrote something um, in 2018, February 2018, where when a child says she's trans, uh, it seems like it's occurring a lot more. Even the Atlantic had to recognize that. And they, a pretty good article, actually, on some of the psychological ramifications of that. Ha what have you noticed? Have you, have you um, and you kind of answered that earlier, you know, but any particular psychological ramifications if a person decides to detransition? Uh, do they feel betrayed? Uh, do they feel like they have a voice? Do they feel like they have an audience? I imagine it, it must be a very lonesome time for them because they're ousted from the LGBT community because they no longer are the model anymore. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how they feel in just, quote, normal society, you know, outside, you know, I mean, or do they feel like they have a home? Is there a community for them? What is it like for that you've that you've seen for people that detransition later in life? Well, in, in my studies, uh, and I would heartily recommend uh, the book by, um, um, uh, what's her name? Abigail, Abigail, Abigail Schreier. Schreier. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it's irreversible damage. She does an amazing job at researching this. And so what she has found as related to this is that to the degree that the parents have gone along with this and supported even the earliest transitions, even such things as for a young girl getting a breast binder, for instance. And that's very common. These, these girls, they don't want to show that they have breasts. They want to bind them up um, to the degree that they have come out as transgender and, and, and received accolades from their peers and from the students and from, from, uh, individuals that are transgendered around the country, it makes it that much harder for them to desist later um, because they've more and more identified themselves with this group. So what, what Schreier found is that parents who, who were supportive and parents who said, I love you, I don't really agree with this, 
and, and maybe even go to some radical steps of relocating the family. There's several that have done this, that they, they pick up their daughter and they move to an entirely new location so that she doesn't have the same friends. And they, they cut back on their internet exposure because a lot of this is through the internet. And they really try and just keep them from going down that road. Those girls and boys, though this is more common in girls in this, this new craze, they're more likely to desist and then be, be, have easier acceptance with, among their peers and their friends. So it, it really, the two are tied together. So the more this teen has identified as transgender, the harder it is to desist. And when they do, the more painful and, and isolated they become because they, you're right, they are completely rejected by the transgender community if they should decide to detransition. Uh, I didn't know it was more common with girls. I, um, and you're an OBGYN, I mean, you've, uh, why do you think that is psychologically, what it is about this movement that appeals to them, especially young teenage uh, females? I think it's related to the same reason why anorexia nervosa is more common in teenage girls. Uh, they're, they're looking in a different way for being accepted. Uh, there are fewer ways. Boys can be accepted through sports uh, and they can, they've got their peers and they can act out. And yes, and there, there are girls that, that can get accepted that way as well. But, but it, it just appears that for whatever reason, I'm going to sound really sexist. I hate to, I hate to sound that way. But, but the teenage girls tend to be more uh, receptive to these crazes among their friends. And the boys just are not. And, and I don't know that I have a good answer for that, but that's what Abigail Schreier has, has documented in her book in that, mm. you know, they've even had groups of girls that are cliques and all six of them would decide within a couple month period of time that guess what they're all transgender well that's no accident uh and mm -hmm. that hasn't happened mm -hmm. that i know of with boys mm. brad go ahead did you have a question yeah well i was just i was just gonna say i think so much of this too has the you know you mentioned social media and the impact yeah. that it's having on on the appearance and all the accolades and praise they get when they come out or when they acknowledge themselves in some prized uh, category. Um, and, and so it just feeds this emotional need that they're not getting. And so as a pastor, I, I think, you know, you mentioned this, Peter, just the need that we have as a church to, to pour, to love people who are, who are going through trials and, and, and challenges. But I think as well, just being very practical as telling parents to to protect their kids from social media and maybe that you they're not old enough to handle the emotional uh trauma that's going to come into their life by having an instagram account or a facebook account i mean that we just avoided that altogether with our kids and they they're they're blissfully ignorant yeah. on on these yeah. matters um, so I don't know how how often have you seen that play in uh, just in your in the research or, or uh, the impact of social media on uh, on the on the data? It's it's huge. It, it is huge, and there there okay. are lots of YouTube videos that are out there. There are websites that these kids go to, hmm. and all of them. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Again, I'm going back to to Schreier's book, but she she, she found that. A lot of these girls, as they're telling their story, they'll use certain phrases, and those phrases you can find online. 
So they learn. In fact, some mm. of these these people that have transgendered and are now in their 20s and they've got these YouTube channels, they'll tell these young kids, these, these young girls and boys, here's what you say to your parents. Here's what you say to the doctor that will convince them. Uh, this is what you say to your friends. And, and so they adopt this, this language and, and the arguments. And so it's very prevalent and, and that's how they can, they can feed into this. And I think a lot of it, we can underestimate the importance of identity. A lot of these young kids, they're searching for an identity. They don't fit in with their peer group. They're just a little different in one way or another. They're not part of the cool group. And so they're looking for the answer, well, who am I? And suddenly this option mm. is, is maybe you're trans. Mm. And suddenly they start thinking about that and they go, huh, maybe I am. And then that becomes their source of identity, their source of worth. And that's very difficult to shake once you take that identity on. And that's, that's a large part of what social media is doing with these kids. Just, you know, there are two things that you had said. One that was a surprise for me, I've been studying this for a while. I did not know just a few months cross-sex hormones did that and eight, that it was up to 85% if you, you know, that if you just wait, you're gonna be going back to your wow. biological sex. Those two facts by themselves seem like if you prefaced every discussion, if every mental health counselor, every single doctor prefaced the discussion with the family and with them, and if we have medical doctors, I'm a therapist, I'm, a, I'm, 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 I have, I'm still under the Hippocratic Oath, I do no harm. I am, I am obligated by my state licensing board to make sure I'm not harming my patients. Yeah. It seems like I'm really harming my patients if I don't tell them two pretty serious ramifications. Number one, you have you have 85% of a chance, 8.5 out of 10, <laughs> you will detransition, you will go back to your biological sex if you wait. And number two, if once you get on these, you will never have a child again biologically. That by itself, and I've noticed this even with um, you practice my, you know, I'm in practice, I try not to push my own views that by that, um, those two facts, um, once I state that, people will often just really reconsider. Some will decide to make the choice, some will, some will, but most of them won't. And I, I, it's not really a question in there, but that's, that's I guess, the cognitive dis mm. dissonance that we in the medical community often feel or, or in the therapeutic community feel. Because once we start kind of researching some of these things, does that mean I have to withhold actual information for, you know, some type of call it political correctness or whatever you want to do so I can, you know, make sure I'm affirming my patient. But if my number one obligation is to do no harm and to tell them the truth, how is that contradicting my af affirmation of where they are? It just seems such a such a very ethical, I suppose, uh, difficult position for any of us to be in. I mean, it's... It, I, yeah, I just didn't know if you wanted to to add anything on that. Well, I, you're, yeah. you're you're exactly right. Those two things together should be enough that would stop any aware, uh, science aware, practicing physician from from engaging in the therapy. But you might then say, well, what is the other side going to say? Yeah, yeah. And the other side is going to say, yeah, but if you wait 
and they have gotten further in through their sexual development. So again, let's go back to the young girl. She now is, is 18, 19 years old. She's got completed breast development. She's started her period. Her transition is going to be much more difficult. And that is true on one level. Uh, and, and so what, what the transgender ideologues will emphasize is that we need to make it as easy for them as possible by, by getting involved very early in puberty, by blocking puberty and then starting. But, but they, they are ignoring the fact that, that 85 out of 100 are not going to need all that treatment and, and not have to deal with all the potential side effects. One of the things that I didn't mention, but we do know that puberty blockers, and I used these puberty blockers in treating a, 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 a problem called endometriosis. So I'm very familiar with them. And they came out, hmm. uh, the FDA said you can only give them for six months because it interferes with calcium metabolism and, and the, the putting of calcium onto bones. Well, adolescence is the time that we put 80 to 90% of the calcium that goes onto our bones happens in adolescence. So when you put these kids on puberty blockers, you're messing with their bone density for the rest of their life. That's, that's not an, an inconsequential side effect. So uh, anyway, all that to say, I know what the other side is going to say. They're going to say, yeah, but if you don't treat and you don't intervene, if they decide, if they're in that 15% group, it is much more difficult for them. And that is true. But in, and of course, in my mind, it isn't worth it. And it, it isn't worth treating 85 wrongly and exposing them to side effects just to help that 15. Yeah. And I think I would just, I would just say to both groups, we're still under obligation that we need to at least tell them the facts. And if they still decide to do it, okay, that's one thing, but at least they know, at least they know that 85% chance. And that's what's, that's what's really just, you know, disheartening. Um, I want to really respect your time. And uh, Brad, I don't know if you wanted to add anything. I just wanted to end on um, this one last question, but Brad, did you have something? Well, I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to come back sure. to something yeah. you had mentioned um, earlier, uh, Dr. Barrows, just in, in your background and your research with um, tra sex trafficking and being able to identify some of the, you know, the signs and markers that these things are happening. Uh, because it's, it's, it's obvious that that many of these kids who are going through these uh, these emotional trials and this um, thinking that they are in the wrong body, the vast majority of them have been abused. The, the vast majority of them have some significant sexual abuse in their history. And so I think it would be, you know, one way to be proactive here is to cut that abuse off before it happens and, and or, or at least early before it really does da tremendous damage. And um, I don't know, as a pastor teaching, um, you know, discipling parents on these, for these signs, to look for these signs, what are, what are some, if you have a quick answer to that, I know it's a huge topic, maybe you just share a resource or something, but what would you say uh, to a parent who's concerned about that? Well, you're, you're kind of hitting on two different issues, Brad. And I, I first of all, want to mm -hmm. agree that e even in sex trafficking that doesn't involve transgender, uh, we, we know that over 90% of the girls right. 
have experienced sexual abuse. And that was one thing I found out as I got into the trafficking situation and learned about it more, is we have an epidemic across the country of child abuse. There are over 3 million reports every year on child abuse. It's just horrific. And, and so if you wanna talk, a lot of times I would be giving a talk to a community group and they would say, well, what, what can we do to prevent this? You prevent it by starting right. at the home. And, and these, these are families that are going to churches. It's not just you know some other group out there. These are families that are going to churches and these are kids. So the churches can begin by looking for some of the signs. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're talked about in a lot of different environments, but when, when a, especially a girl, but it also happens to boys, when they begin to act differently, especially around uh, uh, puberty, and, and when I say differently, they begin to withdraw from parents, and parents keep asking what's wrong, what's going on, you know, they refuse to answer. Um, really, I would encourage parents to, to continue to find out and specifically ask the question, has somebody done something to you, you know they shouldn't have done? And, and that mm. really corners the child. And, and also in the context that don't worry, I'm not going to be mad at you. And, and you may think you're going to get into trouble, but I need to know, has anybody done anything to you they shouldn't do? And in fact, I recommend that parents do that with adolescent kids on a every six month basis, you know, regularly. regularly, whether or not they're, they're acting normally or not, because it is so prevalent. It's, 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 it's really uh, sickening. Now, when we move into the healthcare setting, that's where we can begin to find and identify these kids quite easily because, in a matter of fact, you know, we're, we're very intrusive about sex things, especially as an OBGYN. And I actually ran into a girl. I, I didn't know about trafficking when I saw her, but as I learned about trafficking, I realized, oh my goodness, this girl was trafficked. And, and the way I knew that was one of our routine questions as, as an OBGYN was, how many sex partners have you had? And I'll never forget a 16-year-old girl whose answer was more than 500. Oh, now, I didn't know what to do with that answer. Well, now, now I know what to do. I, I okay, you've been trafficked. Let's mm -hmm. let's let's figure out how we're going to get into that because that's the only way, in my mind, a 16-year-old gets more, not just five, more than 500 uh, sex partners. So. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, there, I will say there, if, if you have uh, listeners that are healthcare professionals, we have a whole list of educational modules that they can come to on our website uh, and cmda.org and, uh, and learn about trafficking, learn about trafficking in the healthcare setting and, and uh, begin to recognize because we know that at least 80% of these people come into healthcare while they're being trafficked. Well, thank you. Yeah, that really was thank you. a great question, right. Brad. Thank you. And that that relates to what you just said. Where what should the what should the church do? And I'm just going to recommend your website and uh, your organization. That's fantastic because it's, you know, what we've just to summarize. It's considered unethical where we stand by the APA and the physicians group, multiple physicians groups. Um, it's considered unethical to even ask questions at most universities, if not almost every research university uh, that wants to look in these areas areas, unless it's a Christian university, I suppose, uh, you could possibly lose uh, your 
um, your license in certain areas, like what you just said, at least your reputation, you could possibly, if certain laws get passed, like the Equality Act, and I wish I was just believing conspiracy theories, but I read it very carefully, possibly lose your children um, <laughs> if you don't affirm your nine-year-old's gender, five-year-old's gender. I So I say all that because honestly, when I read all that, it really, when I say, where should we go? It just seems like the church needs to hold on because we're going to be facing some serious persecution. That's that's just my, you know, assessment. Like, I'm not sure I've ever come across something where the medical community, the psychological community, the university, the media laws are all building things to basically make it impossible for a Bible-believing Christian to coincide with those uh, like, in other words, there's really probably not going to be anywhere else where we can go. So other than facing some type of persecution. So on that note, I mean, what, what, how would you encourage us? How would you encourage people who are trying to live, um, you know, Christian lives and, you know, be ethical at the same time? Uh, and, you know, I also want to say to my listeners, too, that, you know, I, I have clients and everything else. I treat them. You know, I, I, I give people a lot of leeway and uh, as for when I, what I mean by that, I, I listen to them. I'm here for them. I'm not trying to change anybody. I, I'm not I don't consider myself a Christian therapist. I'm a Christian in therapy, in the therapy practice. So I respect where people are. I just kind of tell them what's, you know, the research says and you all need to make your decision. So I guess, yeah, any any words of encouragement, hope or kind of like where I what I feel is we're, we're in for a long ride. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I, uh, yeah. Again, Peter, I would agree. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and I know we don't want to get too political, but this election is going to make a difference. Hmm. There is there are is two very different ways of looking at this issue uh, from both both parties, and, and it will make a difference whichever way it goes. I, I would just point that out. Uh, number two, uh, I would recommend uh, Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage to any parent who has mm-hmm. got a young girl that's beginning to go down this road or a young boy. Um, excellent book. It'll give a lot of help. Uh, there's also a guy by the name of Walt Heyer. I don't know if you've ever run into yeah, Walt. Yeah. He was uh, on the Candace Owens show recently. Yeah, He's got a, a great web, web, website, sexchangeregret.com. That's sexchangeregret.com. But Walt... Walt is in his late 70s now, but just to give a little background, he lived as a woman for eight years. He he went through everything. He's He's been through the hormones, the surgeries, all of that, and uh, he actually became a believer uh, and then realized he had made a horrible mistake and, uh, and detransitioned. Uh, he's now married, uh, and but he says he's he still... Wow suffers from the mutilation that he, he he himself is responsible for. And so he has a passion for helping people uh, that that are considering uh, detransitioning. And uh, it's it's a great website, all kinds of resources for parents, the, the church, uh, uh, healthcare professionals uh, and the like. And then finally, I, I would just say that we at CMDA are in the process of putting together a series of of educational modules specifically for the church. It'll be a while before they're they're going to be online, but um, one of them will be addressing the issue of transgenderism. And so 
I think early next year, uh, if people are interested in, in learning more about the ethics from a Christian perspective in healthcare, they can go to our website at cmda.org. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, go um, ahead, Brad. Yeah. One last thing, and then I do want to, I'll let you go, sure. I promise. <laughs> I, I just appreciate it. Just on, from a citizen standpoint, is there, are there resources we can look to, to keep on top of the legal uh, situation or, or, or things we can do to, you know, write to our local um, civil authorities or state authorities to try to get some change, you know, um, going in this area? Yeah, I, uh, there are a couple of laws that are have, have just been introduced into Congress um, by a Republican out of California. This is at the federal level two of them, one would, would make it illegal to engage in uh, transitioning therapy for a minor. The other one would remove any kind of federal funding uh, for transitioning, both from minors and adults. So I, I, I don't know what the odds are of those bills passing, but um, I would encourage you, your listeners to be aware of that. Focus on the Family tends to follow this fairly well um, California, as a matter of fact, this week is, is about to pass a horrific bill. I'm not at all happy about it. We're going to lose in California. It's creating a state fund that will, will help fund these, these procedures, in, especially for kids. Um, but, but yeah, just stay alert. Uh, we're not in a position to keep, uh, you know, the general public, uh, aware of these things, but focus on the family does a good job. And, uh, and just just be alert and, and and if they hear anything, become engaged. Write your representative, yeah. write your senator uh, at, at either the state or federal level. Thank you. Well, Dr. Barrow, yeah, I Thank really you. appreciate you coming on. Uh, learned a ton. Yeah. Uh, just I appreciate you the work that you've done. Uh, and continue to do. Uh, thank you so much. You could just recognize your passion, your heart for for these children and I, I think our listeners are going to be highly, uh, hopefully, uh, blessed and also challenged. And mm -hmm. I just really appreciate you taking the time uh, to to uh, help us understand what's going on a lot more. And I just really appreciate all that you've done. So yeah, thank it's you. It's been my, been my pleasure. Yeah. Good to get to know you both a little bit. So yeah, yeah. may the yeah. Lord use this. Uh, we look forward to following up. Yeah. I'm sorry look forward to following up on your uh, on the training modules and we'll we'll keep um, people informed on that as well like, I, I'd love to to go through those myself so um, yeah thank you very much yeah, for your time my pleasure really appreciate it. thank you well that was a encouraging interview I mean I was I was blown away by um, you know just about every answer he gave the yeah. very informative uh, thank you so much again. Dr. Jeff Barrows, and mm -hmm. we will be interested in following the work and research uh, you continue to do in this field. Um, and and just, Peter, I know this was a topic that, that we've talked about before and something that um, just, it's clearly a, a passion of, of yours. This was an interview that you had sort of sought out and, and set up, but what are your concerns in, in general in this, in this field? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I what I was saying earlier, or, you know, right at the end, I mean, just warning. Number one, I think we need to warn. I mean, some of his warnings are really great just to 
or he just just basically as a as a you know uh, I guess an asterisk. Hey, before you do this, I want to tell you this. But I think you know, as a family therapist, as I was listening to him, um, especially when he said eighty five percent, you know, I I get the sense that in about 15, 10, 20, 30 years as a family therapist, I'm going to see a lot of these young kids who have detransitioned just feel a real sense of betrayal from mm. their parents on uh, basically letting them make a decision that's way above them and beyond their development and their comprehension. Um, mm. I see this quite a bit whenever I counsel young kids of divorced families. Uh, this is called parental alienation, where one parent will say, for example, be living with mom, or excuse me, one child will be living with his mom, and the mom just absolutely despises the father. And every time the kid goes visits the father, the mom kind of uh, just says pretty cancerous thing as she's walking out the door, texts it some guilt, you know, some things that are like, hey, you should, you know, I can't believe you're spending time with that, that, that loser, that Homer mm -hmm. Simpson. When the kid then comes back, she lays into the dad. And the natural response for a lot of these kids are, I got to defend my mom. Uh, five, 10, 15 years later, what I, and I've seen this, and I also have read reports of this, the parental alienation causes a significant amount of distrust on that particular parent. And the child, when he grows up, 30, 25, 30, 40 years old, they're asking their mom, why did you make me do that? Why did you make me hate my father? I know that you two didn't get along, but why was I put in this? And and honestly, there's a huge amount of cutoff that often occurs when that when that happens. And I fear the same thing's gonna happen. I, I think in 10 to 15 years, you're gonna see a lot of these young children detransition. Hmm. Uh, they're gonna get out and they're gonna look at their parents and they're gonna be asking, why did you let me do this when I was seven? Um, I, 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 I just, I still believed in Santa Claus. <laughs> uh, wh why did you allow me to do this at five or four even? I'm, the youngest I've ever heard was two and a half, three. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine when you're in your thirties trying to have a relationship with your parents when your parents are really supposed to protect you from harm as well. Um, we're not supposed to believe everything about everything our child says. Right. You know, that's yeah, just... It's, it's that, so you could actually be harming your kid if you believe everything your your child says. So anyway, that's that's my biggest concern. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's that's so. great. And I mean, I I just think about my own childhood and like when I was really young, some of my earliest memories were hanging out with you know my cousins and and I had cousins who were girls. So what did we do? Uh, we played house. We played dress up. And what did they have for me to dress up in? It, it was not the, it was not manly things. Right. Yeah. So I would wear heels around the house and I just like, it's a vivid remember, uh, memory in uh, that I have of, you know, my, my brother may be mocking me at, and, but yet just enjoying that time. I can't imagine growing up now, it, it, if I were in a family, w which w that was much more awakened to the current, you know, um, trend where what, what, what that would have led me to, I've never had, you know, any homosexual uh, tendencies in my, yeah. my, my life. And yet like just as a kid playing around could have disastrous consequences for your future. Like today, based on the, the current um, 
you know, the current instruction and guidance that we're given. That's, that's terrifying to me. And I think it needs to be, we need to absolutely be aware of these things and, and encouraging pushback at every level, right? The local, the state, the national level. I appreciated what he, um, some of the, the recommendations he gave there in terms of even just, you know, cautioning about social media and being aware of the, the, the danger of allowing our kids to be completely caught up in, in a world that we have no awareness of as parents, you know, that yeah. we're not tracking what they're looking at, what they're playing with on, on their phone, um, as they get older for sure. And, and what, I mean, there are, there are some, some really, uh, dark worlds <laughs> that, that they could just fall into, um, you know, these, these apps that don't have the, the controls, uh, in place that are needed. Um, and, yeah. and it, it, it's yeah. concerning that that would lead people to, and there's to so many therapy models permanent too. decisions. Yeah. There's so many therapy models too, that look at trauma, mm -hmm. childhood trauma and the, and the gifts of all, just of all childhood trauma really comes from, um, living in an environment where their childhood was robbed from them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, young kids who grew up in alcoholic families having to take care of their siblings, their childhood's gone. Um, young mm. kids who are beaten up um, and having to, uh, because he gets in the way between him, uh, the dad and the mother who's being beaten, uh, you know, his childhood, it's, it's robbed. And often much later in life, these are kids that struggle with addiction. These are kids that struggle with suicide, anxiety, um, have a very hard time with relationships. From what I heard him say, you are, you are making a child, you are, you are allowing a child to make a decision when he can't even tell you what, what, whether or not he wants um, the Batman set or the right. Spider-Man set for Christmas. This is who you're talking to. And you're, you're, you're putting a decision on him that is going to rob him from ever having a child again. And mm. I, I, I just can't imagine as he said, I mean, our, I mean, in Massachusetts, you can't even smoke when you're 21. Uh, yeah. Mm. I mean, it just, it's, it's, I, we in the church, I think we're really called to be a lot more responsible than what we are. We can't, we can't mess around anymore. We got to stand up. We can't be cowards. We have to mm. tell the truth, which is why yeah. we started this, but it just kind of invoked a fire in me, honestly, just like, yeah. we, come on guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, well, we're, kind of like what Carmen was saying, you know, you're the, anyway, she was no, saying that was that, so. the super villain. The super villain. <laughs> you're super villain. Anyway, but channel that inner super villain. Yeah. I, I really lived it. Yeah. It was wonderful. I just like to point people to, um, you know, our Facebook page if they want to track and follow along as we come across helpful resources, we'll share those on there um and we'd love your feedback as well we'd love to hear from you when when we share things um if you have resources um post them on there and and let us know because that may lead into potential podcasts down the road that um you know about topics that we haven't thought about yet but yeah please subscribe yeah subscribe <laughs> give us a review a rating yeah. um we we'd appreciate it thanks guys all right thank Everyone. you